This episode is brought to you by Passive Aggressive Florists. The time has come. Your son is marrying that ninny no matter how many times you've politely rolled your eyes in her presence. Or your coworker is throwing a birthday party for herself after you've helpfully explained in so many words that it's in bad taste. Passive Aggressive Florist lets you properly acknowledge a loved one's idiotic milestone when you're just too nice to say what they honestly need to hear. For when your office mate celebrates becoming your manager after two years of accepting the career advice you freely offered. How about a Sumatran corpse flower that smells as expected? Or an Australian stinging tree that will grow up to 30 feet, a true legacy gift. When your conniving younger brother moves into your childhood home that your parents just gave him for nothing? What could be more appropriate than an African bastard cobra flower? When you hand it to him, tell him what the name is. A bastard cobra. I saw it and I thought of you. All the arrangements at Passive Aggressive Florists are very expensive, and you can tell your loved one how expensive as you hand it to them, and then recommend a prominent place to display it and mention how much you'll look forward to seeing it there every time you come by. You're going to love Passive Aggressive Florists. Of course you will, after all that they've done for you. And thank you, Passive Aggressive Florists, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning, the following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolfe. We don't pretend that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We want to understand them in as much detail as possible, and that means considering the works as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Welcome back, everyone. And let's just get right to those comments because we have corrections to address. Wrong, wrong, wrong. On the Facebook page, Corkut Goulet, originally of Turkey, has some corrections around our discussion of the beheadings and green men. We were talking about the story of Gwen and the Green Knight, and I interjected a story about Abraham sacrificing his son. My actual memory of this story is that it was Ishmael, so I screwed that up a little bit. <laughs> but Korka, who would know more than me, says that according to the Quran, quote, Abraham doesn't really sacrifice his son. He does so in his dream. He wants to follow up with the act, but uh. God dulls his knife. And that actually frustrates Abraham by this time. He's <laughs> being tested by God a third time. God says, you've passed the test. Here is a ram. And now you have annual sacrifice of certain types of animals. That's cool. That's even more hardcore to actually mm. make him like stab Isaac with the <laughs> But he's got a dull. That's, that's more hardcore. <laughs> that is definitely harsher. Yeah. So, well, as far as my story of Ishmael, my memory of it is that it came from Hamlet's Mill and that the authors were connecting the story of the Green Knight to the other beheading stories in um, you know, folklore, myth, and religion. And that book is sitting on my shelf, and it has an extensive index. But I just checked that index, and I can find no citation for Abraham, Ishmael, or Isaac. I also have two separate PDFs of the book, and a word search turned up nothing. An internet search for that story turned up nothing. I don't no, you know, Craig, my memory is a lot like, uh, you know, your grandma's attic. You, you, <laughs> you poke around, you find stuff, you say, oh, where, where did this come from? 
uh, I don't know. What is it? I don't know. And you know, that's me. <laughs> but, you know, thanks uh, for the correction, Core Cut. In the episode subreddit, Michael Andre Dreesi says, Wolf's Alzabo is not shown as a grave robber. It is a hunter of live prey. It uses mimicry to get more live prey. Ultimately, I believe the Alzabo comes from the magic wolf of Little Red Riding Hood. The magic wolf is hunting live prey. The magic wolf eats the grandmother and mimics her very well to get more live prey, luring the girl closer and closer. Severian does have a cloak. Yeah. Oh, that's a very good point. <laughs> very good. If only Wolf had had Beckon going out looking for his mother so that when he came back, he would the wolf would be the grandmother. That would have been perfect. That would have been cool. Yeah. yeah. Still, I mean, it feels like there's some sort of uh, source that he was drawing from, and I have no idea what it could be. Also, remember we were talking about how interesting it is that the green man speaks Severian's language. Mm -hmm. And we kind of decided everyone speaks the same language in this book. Even the Asians, we said, speak the same language, even though they have a funny method of speaking it. Well, Sean Michael Robinson on the Facebook group says, oh, no, 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 no. Quote, it's specifically stated that the Asian prisoner in Citadel the Autark was a translator. In other words, he learned the tongue of the Commonwealth. The other Asians speak their own language, but still in a stylized quotation. So, you know, well done. Yeah, the yep. green man must have some sort of language powers to elide this problem since he seems to know so little about the Commonwealth. Yep. And after you said that, too, I looked it up and I'd forgotten that scene at the end of Citadel where they go to the Ashen's tent and Severian sees the the two or three people who have whatever sort of psychic connection or whatever the communication thing is back to headquarters or whatever. And right. I forgot. Yeah. That's that too is in a different language. Yeah. Right. I, well, um, Sean has more to say too, based on his theorizing, I've been noting when people have a beam of light shining on them as a potential sign of them being a relative of Severian and the green man had a beam of light on him as well. Well, Sean thinks that this might be too simplistic. He says, I've been meaning to catalog these sunshine references and see what we've got so far, but it's possible there needs to be a dis distinctions between mentions of the sun and illuminated by the sun and references to the sun illumination coupled with the appearance of gold as well. Well, okay, Sean, but there's the smell of hay curing. So <laughs> there's your gold. He also says, I think Sev's visceral reaction to the green man's laughter is multifaceted. One that this creature would laugh at a deeply held and pervasive wish of the current populace for the return of the new sun to a visceral revulsion to the otherness of the laugh itself. Acoustically, you know, the, the timber of it recall his description of the green man's voice as he enters the tent. The laugh is a visceral communication of his otherness. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of symbolic clay in that laugh for us to play with. But, you know, Seth could just as well be having some kind of uncanny valley reaction. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And that totally makes sense. I think it's just then why is why is it that moment that it comes yeah. up when it's when it's so much about you know, the new sun and what we right. believe in that kind of thing? Yeah. 
Um, but it's a good, it is a fair point. Yeah. And I think that whichever way we take it or to, to mean it or think the green man means it definitely does have that otherness and yeah. alterity to it. Yeah. But maybe that laugh represents all the people the new son will kill. There, <laughs> there you go. Symbolic clay. <laughs> Sean liked the understanding that Agia is a native South American, a girl from the country around or north of Nessus, maybe an autochthon. And accepting that she's a country girl from the north can allow us to just accept a lot of her weirdness. It does for me, anyway. I mean, mm-hmm. it doesn't explain yeah. everything, but it does explain a lot. Yeah. And Michael Grant reminded us that the understanding of who Agia is as a native South American supports the idea that she's associated with Declan and the anti-New Sun wizards. Yeah. But it's definitely casts a shadow on her claim that hers and Agilis's mother left them the rag shot. Any conventional idea of a mother, anyway. Anyway, that's what I think. On the subreddit, Lord of Atlantis has other thoughts about the green man. He says, Roman Catholic clergy wear vestments of different colors depending on the season. Green is worn in summer, fall after Pentecost, and in the winter, starting in mid-January after Epiphany. It's the color of hope because of vegetation. They grow leaves every spring. If you never knew summer, you might think the plants are dead in the winter, but they come back each summer. The the green man is the color of hope. Yeah, that makes sense too. I mean, and, and I think that works on all kinds of levels. The yeah. green really is, I mean, this gets back to my tracking of blue and green and like, yeah. are, are they always coded? And, you know, sometimes green is, is like that. I mean, here, like I've said before, green man always seemed to me like the promise of what a, a good future could be and mm-hmm. sort of overcoming conflict and all that. But then you also have the planet green, which is right. a horrible, frightening place. Yeah. Right. So it's, yeah. it, it always, there's always two sides, but, but no, that the point's well taken. And I like that connection to, uh, so yeah, something specifically Catholic there. That's nice. Also, we were talking about how it could be that the green man having come f- to the Commonwealth from the future has no knowledge of the coming of the new sun. I mean, he can see the sun in Severian's time. Yeah, he must know something happened. Well, in the subreddit, Pantopsilus says, I might have to accuse you of overlooking the obvious. Take a number, Mr. P. He says, I think the green man reacts the way he does to Severian asking about the coming of the new sun because he's aware of just how horrific an event that will turn out to be for everyone involved. This would mean, of course, the green man is lying when he says he doesn't know anything about how the sun was refreshed. But I'm willing to believe that he was sparing Severian's feelings. Hmm. Yeah. Craig, in this book, one should always be open to the possibility that people are lying to you. Mm -hmm. I'm certain I often think so but that is a reasonable solution given how often i've suspected of being lied to in this book i wonder (laughs) why i don't find it more satisfying but (laughs) i don't but still well done i think too that since the green man seems so honorable otherwise like the fact that he's now going to try and save severian because he saved him Mm -hmm. i don't get the feeling that he really has much of a reason to lie about something like that so yeah he thinks he's gonna die anyway right Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah But the point, the point is a good general reminder. That yeah. is absolutely true. Well, he also adds, the first time I read the book of the new sun, the green man immediately made me think of the green children of Woolpit, 
other than the image of the children traveling through a passageway to reach our own world from their own. I'm not sure how far I could go with that, though. Oh, I think we can go quite far. First of all, it's pretty idiotic that I forgot the association when we were talking about the green man because the green Wait, I'm children- stupid. What is Woolpit? Uh, well, I will tell you okay. <laughs> because the green children of Woolpit was discussed on the earth list. And also it's just the sort of story that I love and just the sort of story I think Wolf loved. Okay. So here you go. You want to know? Here it goes, Greg. First of all, the story of the Green Children of Woolpit is purportedly a true story that took place in the 12th century England during the reign of King Stephen. That's a specific 20-year period between 1135-1154. It was cited by two contemporaneous authors. One of the contemporary chronicles was William of Newburgh, who died in 1198, and the other was Ralph of Coggershall, a monk who lived nearby and died 28 years later, 1226. So Ralph would have been too young to have remembered these events personally, but he claimed to be familiar with people involved. Woolpet is a village in Suffolk in England between Bury St. Edmunds and Stowmarket. It got its name from the wolf pits in the area, pits for trapping wolves. So we have established realistic appeal for this story for Wolf, who loved associations with his name. All right, the Green Children. They were a boy and a girl, a sister and her little brother. Green in color, otherwise normal in appearance. They wore strange clothes. They spoke an unknown language. They would only eat raw beans. They wouldn't eat anything for days until they came upon some raw beans. Oh, yeah, <laughs> musical fruit. <laughs> When they started eating other food, they lost their green color, but the boy soon got sick and died. The girl eventually learned English and explained that they had come from St. Martin's Land, a place without sun that was in constant twilight. They had followed some cattle into a cave and got lost. They wandered around in the tunnels until they heard the sound of bells and followed them into Woolpit, where they were found next to one of the wolf pits. The chronicler says they heard the bells of the monastery of Bury St. Edmunds. The girl was eventually baptized, but she was constantly noted to be, quote, rather loose and wanton in her conduct. William of Newburgh, the, the older one, remember, he said that she worked for many years in the household of a man named Richard de Calnay, where she was considered to be, quote, very wanton and impudent. He said that she married a man about 40 miles from Woolpit, where she was still living shortly before he wrote his account. So yeah, I think we can take the association quite far. And the description of the girl calls to my mind, Jolly in the book of the short son, the Inhuma, who was herself pretty wanton and impudent when she was in human form during dream travel. And also the Inhuma Fava, whose name is a bean. So, <laughs> Okay. How did I not know about this story? Yeah, isn't that this a great story? Amazing. Okay. Yeah. I've never heard of that. That's, oh, I, I, I feel, at first I was like, okay, what sort of, what sort of geek <laughs> thing did I miss? But now I feel even like I should have known about this. Okay, cool. Yeah, well, I got something yeah. to go look up a lot after later. But the short sun stuff there, I mean, I was kind of like, yeah, nice, until you mentioned Fava. And I was like, <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so I was like, oh, shoot. That makes a, that 
oh, that's that's harder to ignore. And knowing how much Wolf loved to pick mm-hmm. on things that had his name. And I'm sure yeah, he went yeah, hunting yeah, for things. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So thanks, Pentopsilus. Yeah, that was hmm. a great association. I love it. I am so ashamed of not remembering it, but terrific. While we're talking about Reddit, on the Gene Wolf subreddit, Redditor 57777777 put up a post considering Wolf's basic proficiency as a writer. He or she went through the effort to note the rules that instructors typically employ to teach good writing and applied them to the first chapter of The Shadow of the Torture. And that is overuse of the passive voice, overuse of adverbs, and also to some extent adjectives, overuse of words ending in ing, usually present participles, especially in relative clauses. Uh, This is less common advice, he says, but I personally believe in it more than the others. And then overuse of the thesaurus. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Hmm. Well, I won't go into it. It was detailed. It was analytical, illuminating. There's a link in the show notes, but five, seven times nine finished with a series of interesting questions. All right. One, what specifically makes Gene so good and where is the first place you realized it? What got you through one of his books the first time before it made sense to you? Have you noticed any distinct features of word choice, grammar, sentence structure, etc., besides his obvious use of rare words? Do you think this type of analysis and imitation has value outside of maybe English class? Can you really break down a writer's style like you're cracking a code and use those insights to generate writing advice? Or is this type of writing advice mostly useless beyond the amateur level? Do you think Gene or other top writers actually spent a lot of time checking to see if they used too many adverbs or too much passive voice? And how much did he deliberately mimic the style of earlier writers like Vance or Proust? Is it worthwhile for future writers to attempt a Wolfian style or was he one of a kind? And then I think these would be especially good topics for the rereading Wolf podcast or for their guests. If they're still taking new questions a month after the (laughs) AMA. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I, I'll just say, as far as the big questions go of, are those things true? The answer is always yes and no, right? I mean, it's always like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Like Passive voice too much is irritating or certain thesaurus things are irritating. But at the same time, you know, any rule is there to be broken if broken in an interesting way, right? And, and also the fact is too, mm-hmm. you're always going to have you know, no two writers or writing instructors are going to agree on examples of like of things like that. Um, but it's like in this case, all those sorts of things, if it wasn't Severian writing this in what's intended to be that sort of weird digressive style, then yeah, it wouldn't work. Like could Latro write the way that Severian does and have it work? He's like, no, I don't think so. Right. Cause Latro's not the same. He, he's not the same character that Severian is. Just like I think if we were having things from Silk's perspective, the way that Severian writes is far too self-absorbed and self-involved and, and it wouldn't, it just wouldn't work. And so all those sort of grammatical things, all that depends on what you're writing about too. And anyway, long, the long answer there is that I think it's really cool that you can find those kinds of rules that he seems to all be breaking just in that first chapter. And I have a feeling that with any <laughs> really interesting stylistic writer, you could find some other list of rules that they're breaking all the time too. Right. I mean, like 
go to the examples, both Hemingway and Faulkner have like opposite, opposite just styles at the sentence level. And yet we both, we call them both good, you know? And so if you tried to distill down of the writing style of one writer and say, this is what makes good writing. Well, not always, you know, it always depends on what you're writing about and, and how it adds up together. So, yeah, but I do like that. I mean, Honestly, I think that's maybe one thing that does say that Wolf really is a really good stylist because he wasn't doing these things unconsciously. It's not like, I mean, the fact that he doesn't always sound like Severian's voice, that means that he was making choices, right, about about what he was doing in the book. And so mm-hmm. the fact that Severian has long rambling sentences with a lot of passive voice, and that's a choice that Wolf was making for a certain effect. And, um, right. yeah, so it's, it's the kind of thing like there's, there's not, there's no such thing as good or bad fiction prose. Like, I just don't <laughs> think there is. I mean, there's, there are things that'll work most of the time, but then there's also things where the exact opposite of what you think is good is perfect for what something is and beautiful. And yeah. And Wolf, you know, in this, I feel like he succeeds in doing all those things. Yeah. Well, obviously I like that first set of questions you know what makes wolf so good mm-hmm. because that's essentially what i keep asking all our guests mm-hmm. what made him so good how did he get away with these things that seem on paper as the saying goes like something that would put off readers and editors so i like these yeah. questions and i you know maybe i wonder if maybe someone could recommend a creative writing academic who is familiar with wolf ideally not in a special fan but also not you know a yeah. hater someone you know we could interview and crack open some of these questions from an analytical point of view and also you know you know the that asked me anything didn't start on reddit for us and i assure you it didn't end a month ago <laughs> so <laughs> bring on the questions but no, we should, we should, if anybody has a, if anyone out there has a good MFA writing teacher who really likes to talk about style and who might've read Wolf, let us know. And we'll love to yeah. get in touch with them. Yeah, that would be interesting. So um, let's clean up some comments regarding previous chapters. On okay. Facebook, Charles Gillingham has some thoughts about those five Ulans in Severian's Dream in chapter one, the ones he encounters at the end of Piteous Gate Tunnel. He says, there were five St. Sentferians. They are listed somewhere. That line about five writers with faces more akin than brothers is pretty obvious to me. He thinks that they are the other Severians. He says, I'm in the camp that all the contradictions in the book are due to the memories of other Severians getting mixed up in Severian's head. There's the first Severian who travels back and picks and chooses what the best bits to add to the final Severian, if our Severian is the final Severian. In chapter one of Claw, we have dream time travel, a reference to multiple Severians, contradictions in his memories. Remember, he not only remembers the event as it happened, but he remembers writing the contradictions earlier in the book and he rewrites the book in Earth. And something happens twice. He repeats the line unforgivable sin later in claw i agree with mr aramini that wolf front loads his ideas in the first chapters you know just for the record craig i i think wolf likes to put the meteor stuff in the middle of the books but you know it's probably a mistake to try to put one rule to all of wolf's stories also regarding chapter one 
David Wells was thinking about Severian's dream, describing it, quote, as though I were the increate peeping through his rent in eternity to behold the world of time. And it made him think of the Flammarian engraving, which he calls the Gnostic opposite of the increate peeping into the world of time. In that engraving, there's a man peeping through the sphere to the world of infinity. And I'll put a link to that picture in the show notes. Hey, Craig, I want to put a marker for your memory. All the times that Wolf, perhaps impiously, associates Severian directly with the Increate. Uh, there is that bit in chapter one of Claw, and it's going to come up in Citadel again. Should we ever talk about the Book of the Long Sun in detail? I think potentially it comes up with Silk mm-hmm. himself. A lot of people aren't going to like that, I think. I, I think those people ought to be just as disturbed by it here in the book of the new sun. And I'm surprised it isn't a bigger deal, but you know, it's not like the increate is a character in this book, right. but you know, arguably these passages say that he is. Yeah. And you can also take that as a kind of almost a kind of pantheism too. I mean, it's one thing to say that, you know, Severian is uniquely the increate. Um, you know, as like, I am the chosen one. But then when you get the the whole thing in Claw about, you know, I'm walking on holy ground, it's, you know, everything is God. That's that, that kind of pantheism is a little mm-hmm. bit of a different kind of identification. So yeah, so context matters a little bit more there, but, um, mm-hmm. but yeah. Mm-hmm. Say, so, you know, what we hardly ever do. Sing? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> That's, and now... <laughs> I've give, I've sent you a list of barbershop quartet songs. And, you know, what we hardly ever talk about are the comments from the YouTube channel. Yeah. We created that channel really as a service to listeners in countries that said that they couldn't reliably get podcast feeds. But then it came in handy when we had to interview Don Mates and needed a medium that was more visual. And I want to do more interviews with artists, by the way. Well, anyway, in the comments in the last episode... Carlos Freitas jumped in as soon as the episode was out to post first dot, 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 Severian. (laughs) Not all comments are especially informative. (laughs) On the other hand, Colin Kozlovich was listening to the episode on chapter two the resurrecting of Barnock and began to see connections to Wolf's ultimate novel interlibrary loan. He said, I've listened to this one a few times now and only on the third listen did Barrick's chapel on Berry Island get me. All right. So before we get any further, I got to say that that in itself is <laughs> kind of outlandish. It's- I mean, I'm the one who Several was worried. Times. I'm the one who was always worried, even back when we started, like we should never go longer than an hour. And now we're like two and a half hours. Sometimes that's fine. But then to have somebody. <laughs> yeah. And I've listened power, to this, wow. you know, several times. He didn't say a couple times. No. <laughs> so now we can have the re-listening to the re-reading Wolf podcast. That's right. Oh yeah. Yeah. One day, one day there, I don't know why you think this is strange. This is the rereading Wolf. And one day there's going to be a re-listening to the rereading Wolf podcast <laughs> podcast. So anyway, <laughs> only on the third listen did St. Barrick's Chapel on Berry Island get me thinking tangentially 
about interlibrary loan as well and the Isle of Lichholm, where there is a certain Dr. Barry. And that's an interesting connection, Craig. And I think it is a very possibly real Dr. Barry Fever, Barry Island. Yeah. And he's not done either. Mother Pyrexia, the woman buried in the, uh, that the Alcalde t- recalls from when he was a child. He says, Colin says, and Mother Pyrexia, being the name of someone who the Alcalde does not recognize, still has me in urn, as in urn Smith's space, as Pyrexia, a word that means fever, has got me thinking of Ada Fever, and not enough yet to turn it into something more tangible. Hmm. Well, how appropriate for interlibrary loan. There are all these familiar tastes that are just beyond identifying mm-hmm. their place in the recipe. Yeah. Still, that's pretty cool. That's, yeah. I can't tell if it's insightful or creative, but maybe both. <laughs> but I, I do like well, it. Well, and these books, you know, insight always requires a certain degree of mm-hmm. creativity. Yep. So I say. The Ice Rasta 22 had a comment regarding chapter four of Shadow, where Severian encounters Triskali and Valeria. It says, for me... The Triskali story arc shows that Severian's character is such a contradiction of sorts. On one hand, he's a torturer inflicting pain and death, feared and loathed by so many, and yet he takes a great personal risk to offer kindness and compassion to essentially a worthless creature that's left for dead. That's true. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And it's interesting, these characters like Triskali, like Valeria, Olten, the Green Man, These people who come and go in a single chapter, but stand out in our minds as if the whole story revolved around them. We were talking about what makes Wolf a good writer. That's one one reason. Yeah. Yeah. His characters are amazing. Hey, even Jonas, so important to Severian. But honestly, you know, he's going to be gone before this book is half Mm -hmm. over. Jason Crockford liked the John Crowley interview. He says, I lap up anything with John Crowley. I truly believe. His novel, Little Big, is one of the best of the 20th century. It changed me. Sometimes when I'm walking down the street, I fall into a reverie about Hawksquill or Auberon or, say, The Art of Memory. Yep. Yeah. And that's one book that I've recommended to people that when they read it, they always love. So it's kind of the opposite of New Sun, where you try and get people to read it. And they're like, (laughs) "Ah, I can't get into it. Everybody I know who's I've recommended Little Big just loves it for all kinds of different reasons. Yeah. And as Stephen... Frug reminded us we've liked it too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, and there's another YouTube comment, Craig. It, you know, if this podcast goes on for another 40 years and we're two 90 something year old <laughs> codgers talking about, I don't know, Castle View or Holly Hollander, I have no doubt that at that point, this comment will still be on my list of top five comments of all time. It's from Andrew. He says, I hate the book, but I love this podcast. <laughs> that's that's gratifying, actually. <laughs> well, Craig, Severian has to go to work, and so do we. So let's get on with the execution of Morwenna. All right. Chapter four, The Bouquet. So the chapter title, Bouquet. Yeah, and it makes sense from a sort of basic plot thing, but it also kind of bugs me because of what 
we're going to talk about with what we think actually <laughs> happens. Like it's sort of, right. it's more like Wolf pointing out and here's a question for you, you know, like, with, yeah, <laughs> thanks a lot. Right. Um, but yeah, cause of, of course it's the bouquet that Eusebia brings in uh, that, that she'll smell and, and there's poison in it that will kill her in one way or another. But, but the, right. the question is who actually put it there. Um, but, and a bouquet is a smell. Yeah. And she breathes it in. That's right? true. Yep. That is true. So that's another good point where the bouquet is not just the flowers, but also the smell and the breathing, um, which I, I don't know that there's a whole lot of smell imagery in the mm-hmm. chapter, but now I'm, I'm sort of racking my head to try and think if, if there's something that I missed, I don't know. Well, I'll, come up as we go but yeah to again it's one of those things just to point this out just because even though we've said it many times it's good to do it's another time where the thing that the chapter title is about doesn't show up until very near the end which um good habit to know about wolf and also makes me wonder if he just named his chapters after he wrote them and was like here's here's (laughs) what i was thinking of last yeah so to me titling it that is more highlighting the question of who actually kills eusebia it's also just a really thinking in terms of symbolism it's a really ambiguous kind of symbol for what's going on here because it's right i mean roses and flowers of course are we know important back from the second chapter of shadow um so to bring up flower imagery here and then to totally mix it up with both death and kind of a kind of celebration and i mean because she's usually i think i think of her as bringing in the flowers as, as just being very happy um but also a way to have the poison get there um but to have all those things uh it's a it's a cool mixed up symbol which is great for great for this book when many things have those sort of dual natures yeah okay same day it's always been since the beginning of this volume it's a very left the mansion on sunday it's friday the day after the last chapter of the shadow of the torturer that's what i believe Severian has been to Barnock's resurrection, so to speak, after which he saw Agia. He chased her down, talked to a woman about the Cathedral of the Claw, then talked to the green man in the showman's tent. And Severian leaves the tent and he looks up at the sun and Severian uses a very interesting idiom. He says, the western horizon had already climbed more than half up the sky. Now, not the sun had climbed up halfway up the sky, but the horizon had climbed. Now, I've never seen this idiom anywhere else. It's, I just think it's a really good way that Wolf has integrated language into his world. This would make no sense in our culture. But in a world where the stars are visible at all times during the day, not only does the sun climb the sky in the morning in the east to, and set on the horizon, but particularly in the morning, the Western horizon climbs up the starry sky throughout the day. It's also one of the classic things that Samuel Delaney talks about, about how science fiction language works um, and the way that references to particularly, you know, things in the sky a lot of times don't function in the same way. And it's one of the primary ways that you have to sort of reorient yourself. Uh, He talks about how the two suns or the two moons rose in the sky. There's this really cool um, uh, description in one. Oh shoot. What's it called? Ah, hold on. Where is that? It's right. It's right by my shelf here. Oh my God. Jewel hinge jaw. Okay. So 
he's got this one essay called the jewel hinge jaw where he really just goes through one sentence and talks about all the different sort of linguistic things that happen in a sort of science fiction story, like even at the language of the sentence of how you have to sort of take things from different contexts and put them in something else. This is sort of textbook example of that kind of thing that he's talking about, which is just cool. It's yeah. a fun thing. So he doesn't know what time it is, but I guess it's a little bit afternoon if the horizon has climbed more than halfway up the sky. Mm-hmm. Yep. And in an hour or so, he's going to have to execute Marwenna. He's giving up the search for Agya, but he figures that, you know, she came to watch Barnuck dragged out of the house. Maybe she'll come to see Marwenna and the cattle rustler executed. Which is a weird statement because I don't get if he's thinking Agya is actually coming to see them. She's <laughs> like, is she just here and wanted to see the show? Uh, yeah. I don't know if this is Severian being a little dense or oh, he hasn't quite I made the connection. Bet on Severian being dense. Right. Yeah. Especially when it comes to Agia, he has like a real blind spot about it. Yeah, he does. So he goes back to the end and he starts reminiscing about Thecla and his elevation ceremony. Severian got to where he could anticipate what Thecla would want to talk about based on what he brought to her that day. If it was food that he'd stolen for her from the kitchen, then she'd talk about some meal at House Absolute. And if the food he brought was meat, then the dinner would be, quote, a sporting dinner with the shrieking and trumpeting of game caught alive, drifting up from the abattoir. Uh, the abattoir is a, a room wherever they butcher the animals. From the abattoir below, and much talk of hawks, hunting leopards, and bratchets. Bratchets are hunting dogs. If he brought her some kind of sweet, a pastry, or something, then she'd talk about, quote, a private meal given by one of the great chatelaines for a few friends, deliciously intimate and soaked in gossip. And if he brought fruit, then she'd talk about an evening party uh, in the green room of the House Absolute, lit by a thousand torches with jugglers, actors, dancers, and fireworks. And sometimes she'd pace while she ate and talked, hold, quote, holding the dish in her left hand and gesturing with her right. And she'd talk about the fireworks springing into the ringing sky, showering green and magenta sparks while the maroons boom like thunder. In this case, the maroons are a kind of fireworks where the whole point is to make noise, not big flash. And there's a note that the ceiling of her cell is barely as tall as she is. And Severian remarks that it saddened him to see, quote, a woman still young and endowed with terrible beauty, so confined. Okay, so I want I don't want to say this bugs me because it's it's not really upsetting about Severian. It's just that it's different from well, the way I describe Shadow, especially in the summary, was I talked about how it really seems organized by like Severian and these three relationships that he has. But by the time we get here to Claw, it's almost like he's totally forgotten. Like he's kind of he's excited by the idea of seeing Asia again. He's not thinking about Dorcas. I think he's barely mentioned her mm-hmm. at this point. And I know we're, he's only been around her for a couple of days. I, I mean, I get that. But at the same time. And maybe he's only missed her for yeah, 24 yeah. hours. And it's just, it seemed to me that Shadow really tried to, to make a point that he was kind of, he was growing a little bit. But now he's back in this spot where he's actually excited to see Agia again, even mm-hmm. though he's got to know that she must. I mean, he doesn't know that she's out to kill him right now, but 
certainly he just killed her brother and he can't be like, oh, there's that cute girl again. I mean, yeah, you know, maybe we can we can reconnect. <laughs> right. And but what he's doing here is he's 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 still in that mindset because then he's immediately sort of switching back to, oh, yeah. And back when I was all attracted to Thecla and was was fascinated by all her little ways, you know, and he's he's completely obsessing over Thecla again. So at this point we're back where Severian's headspace is basically immature again. And he's kind of back in that crushing mindset, it seems to me. Um, and that's why it, frustrating in the sense that, I mean, it's still Severian. He's still a young man right here, but it it's, and it's not that it seems artificial to me. It's just that maybe this is one way of, Wolf trying to remind people at the beginning of the second novel about these other women that Severian was with, but it also just seems to me to ring a little bit untrue to some of the things that he had said about Dorcas, or at least make the stuff about Dorcas not be so true for him. Like right. it wasn't, wasn't as serious. Well, there's something weird about the relationship between Marwenna and Thecla. Marwenna reminds Severian of Thecla mm-hmm. a lot. And there's a lot about her that does call to mind. She's got this pale skin. She's got this dark hair. It's not exactly like Thecla's, but it's it, it's very similar. It's also mm-hmm. dark. There is, I don't know, there's something about Moena's family. It's just strange. And I don't, I just, I'm not, it makes me wonder what Wolf is getting at. It could just be symbolic because the last woman that, Severian sort of killed was Thecla and now he's going to execute a woman. Mm -hmm. And she was definitely the last woman that he was at an excruciation for, for sure. And that could well be, and that could be bothering him. And, you know, I'm going to, we're going to talk about in a little bit, but there's, I feel like there's something about the end of this chapter that where Severian is just totally dense. And so Mm -hmm. maybe this is, sort of foreshadowing that still, still when it comes to women, he's completely dense and, <laughs> and, you know, still focusing on the surface and not really sort of grasping the whole picture of right. what, how, what, what these relationships mean or what they, they say about him or the other people or the situation. Yeah. So as Severian enters the room, Jonas is uncovering Terminus Est for him. Mm-hmm. So yeah, Jonas feels like a friend and a confidant, but really, mm-hmm. I think it's rarely remarked how quickly he has fallen into the role of servant. Yeah. The very end. Who's really just a boy. Even if Jonas were only as old as he appears, uh, rather than, you know, much, much older. I think you compare Jonas to Asapego. So, well, you know, maybe he is like Asapego. Maybe part of his program nature is to assist and care for humans, regardless of his other sentient capabilities. I was going to say one thing I got a sense this time was, yeah, of that servant nature. And it made me wonder if Wolf is suggesting that it's not that he just becomes good friends with Severian. It's that Severian doesn't pick up on the fact that this guy is sort of trained or programmed in some ways to be a helper in Mm -hmm. the system and that he's falling into those patterns. And to Severian, he just interprets it. Oh, Jonas was a very upstanding guy who yeah. you know would, would bring me my sword when I asked him. That was what a good person would do. And you're like, dude, you don't even recognize when somebody's being a servant mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and, and sort of doing it for weird reasons that, you know, should key into something else. Anyway, Severian pours himself some wine because it's inexplicably in his water ewer. Mm-hmm. And Jonas asks Severian, how do you feel? And Severian answers his question with a question. How do you feel? 
because this is going to be his first execution. Well, we don't really know that he hasn't seen executions before or, mm-hmm. or been involved with them, you know. But Jonas doesn't argue. He only notes that he only has to fetch and carry in this uh, execution, which I guess there's been a discussion about what he'll do in yeah. this whole thing. And although I do think it's only been just over a day since they met, I have to wonder when they established this role. Maybe when the all call day came and talked to them that Severian had discussed that he's going to need a second in this job. Yeah, that's what it seems like to me. And yeah. maybe that's part of the deal that they struck for sharing a room. And I, I don't know, but, but yeah. yeah it, and I also get the sense that maybe Severian just sort of assumed that, yeah, here's this guy. I have a job. He's going to help me. <laughs> right. He's going to assist me. Right. So Jonas asked Severian if he's ever performed an execution before since, you know, he looks so young and Severian inflates his resume a little bit. He says, yes, I've done it before. Never to a woman. And he has done it before once. Yeah. Two days right. ago. Specifically not saying that he's only done it. Yeah, exactly. Once two days ago. Right. So specifically not, you know, being honest with right. his friend here. Sure. Uh, but to be fair, he was involved in feckless excruciation and suicide. Mm-hmm. But Severian doesn't seem to think that counts. So once before. Jonas asks if Severian thinks that Morwenna is innocent. The way the question looks on the page, it implies Jonas thinks Severian thinks she is innocent. But mm-hmm. I think he's yeah. just asking, you know, instead of saying, so you think she's innocent, it, that's the way an American English speaker would ask it in order to confirm a belief about Severian's opinion. But I think he's actually asking, do you think she's innocent? And he's dropping the do, not the so. So he says, anyway, he says, you think she's innocent? And Severian says, oh, I'm sure she's not. Well, it takes a while for Severian to state why he believes Marwenna is guilty. He gets distracted discussing the setting of his meeting with her last night, noting that she wasn't stoned or raped. But Jonas prompts Severian that the people might not have abused her because they suspect she's innocent. And he says if she were innocent, she'd have been accused because she had enemies. So the fact that she wasn't abused is a mark against her innocence. He says the innocent have enemies these people are afraid of her. It's an ingenious kind of thing, right? It seems almost <laughs> like a Sherlock Holmesian kind of thing that would end this sort of bad mystery <laughs> thing. Like, and here's the reason why. And you'd be like, and everybody would be like, oh, brilliant. Yeah. It also turns out it's just totally false, right? Right. Like, yeah. We're going to know for a fact that everything Severian's saying here is just is wrong. His reasoning is wrong. I mean, mm-hmm. it sounds intelligent. Um, it can it can make sense on the surface, but yeah, it's just wrong. Yeah. I think this demonstrates the danger of accepting Severian's perspective without skepticism. Yeah. Severian has a very black and white perspective on humanity and on the rules of human interaction. Pity is simply not an emotion that governs people's actions. Fear could be, but not pity. Severian told the green man, I know nothing of pity. And, you know, that's likely true. Severian felt pity for the torture fanboys in chapter 30 Mm -hmm. of Shadow with an equal part revulsion, which might suggest that he felt pity only because they were so detestable. Yeah. So the idea that people would act toward Merwena out of pity because they thought she was innocent or because they found the situation tragic is not something that he can imagine. 
Right. There's a, a bigger layer of irony there too, because he connects her with Thecla, who is obviously someone who he took pity on. Um, mm-hmm. And the fact that he can't sort of make that connection to someone else, unless, you know, it, it, to me, it makes it sound like, okay, he could pity Thecla because he was attracted to her. Mm, yeah. um, but it was Marwina, since he doesn't have that, you know, more kind of selfish reason, then no, she's just a, just a client. Right. Uh, on the other hand, Severian argues that the only reason the village would not have abused her is if they feared her. Well, let's take that as credible. What did they fear? That she was a witch? That her family was powerful? If they thought she was a witch, she'd have enemies. And there's certainly no evidence that she had a powerful family. Although he compares Mawena to Thecla, this is not like Thecla where she was treated well because she was well-connected. Right. But yeah, something that bothers me about this whole little exchange here about her innocence is just that it doesn't really have anything to do with, like you said, I feel like when Jonas asked it, I mean, it's one sentence, but I still get the sense that he was kind of saying, you know, do you have any sense of whether or not she's guilty? And instead of talking about her from a more personal way or, or even a sort of intuitive sense of having, yeah, I saw her and she seemed like this kind of person or that instead he's giving all these things that sound like they're mature professional conclusions that you can draw from something which sounds more detached and sounds more professional but especially since we find out it's all just kind of wrong, um, <laughs> it, to me, it seems like in the end, what it does is it, again, makes Severian here seem really pretty immature. Yeah. And, yeah. And also, you know, given that Thecla was not abused at the Madachin, does that suggest that Severian, even at this early period before Severian and Thecla are joined, already believes that Thecla was a spy? Or maybe or only that her guilt of writing letters to Thea was enough? Yeah. Yeah. Now that's an interesting question. I don't know. I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't get enough here to know if we can figure what Severian's thinking at this point, but it would be interesting if the way he's feeling about Merwina is just all uh, <laughs> projections, projection. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Projection from Thecla. Well, anyway, briefly Severian describes going down to the edge of the water. And I guess this is the guile where they have her chained to the shore. There are a lot of midges biting her there. As we mentioned before, Severian compares her to Thecla. She's beautiful with black hair. The difference is that Moena has straight hair and Thecla's curled. Uh, to me, this suggests wavy hair, not curly hair. Is there a point in the distinction, Craig? Mm, this, I don't know. This physical um, connection between Thecla and Moena. It could be just symbolic, like I say, but that's not how my mind works. If anything, it makes it seem like Severian was just really paying attention because mm-hmm. he's it's not just that she had the same color hair or something, which honestly is probably all I'd remember, um, <laughs> you know, but if you're really in love or fascinated by someone, then you're going to get down to the details. Well, perhaps it only implies that Moena is of indigenous stock and, uh, you know, like uh, Amazonian Indian stock or autochthon stock and Thecla was not. And that could be a class aspect to it that we don't know. Yeah. Anyway, Yasabia, they call her the older woman. She was there at the water's edge abusing her. And Severian says, well, you know, only with words. And Marwenna told Severian that her husband, Stachys, and her son, Chad, had, quote, died of some sickness, probably from bad water. 
And Stackies was quite a bit older, and Severian says about Jonas's age. And this all depends on what young Severian thinks is old. He could be in his mid-30s or as old as 50, hard to say. Yeah, so this is confusing because he said that um, if she was innocent, she would have had enemies, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but she's not sufficient enemy. She only right. She's only abusing her with words. Right, which is such a weird thing. It, you know, it's like this is this whole passage where Severian is – it's funny because I was just talking to I was just talking to a student tonight about people who write in ways that sound really intelligent, but then you, <laughs> you parse it and it's just like this says absolutely nothing. And Severian right here is seeming like like, like isn't that a basic contradiction like on yeah. the, within the same – When you start breaking it down, it becomes just a, a string of justifications. Yeah. And – I think we're going to get to this later, but I think he needs to believe that she's guilty. He doesn't want to admit that, but he does. Yeah, And that goes all the way back to what we had discussed with Agilus and him trying to say, it's not my job to decide Mm -hmm. guilt or innocence. Um, It has to be there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that him rationalizing here is something we've seen him do before. Right. Oh, here's a few random lines. Um, among the guild, apprentices alone wear shirts. I don't know if that's been made explicit before this point. We probably mentioned it, but I don't. I think this might be the time that this was actually stated. Also, uh, Jonas reached for the wine himself, his metal hand clinking when it met the cup. A couple things here. Presumably, he's only reaching for the wine glass to be social. Either Jonas doesn't need to eat or he doesn't need to eat much. But, you know, if he doesn't eat anything at all, I don't know how he keeps the skin on his face or his fleshy prosthetic arm alive without eating anything. Yeah, I don't know. In a couple chapters, he actually tells Severian, he's like, yes, I've mastered the art of pretending. pretending. And and he's like, I've even done it in front of you and you didn't. Yes. (laughs) Well, yeah, he must have. And in order to allow for the human arm to be incorporated onto his body, his body must have been designed to accept human parts, right? This will get into a big question about what kind of thing Jonas is, because we never get anything super particular. And we know that when Severian's in the antechamber and he realizes that the vast majority of Jonas's torso is metal, that's mm-hmm. kind of coming as a surprise to him, right? Because he's like, oh, it's hard, yeah. right? When he's taking his stuff. So, that, so he learns about him, that learns that he's primarily robot by actually feeling him, which always made me think, okay, he knew that he had like metal parts. Mm-hmm. He didn't know the extent of it. Um, so do we know that Jonas is a robot? Maybe he's a cyborg. Maybe his head is human. He does have to sleep after all. Right. And I think, I mean, I think he looks like that right now. And I think the the question about Jonas that comes up is, was he all robot and then got parts of his body, quote unquote, fixed by grafting on human parts, you know, from another, from another person who was there, or was he always somehow a mix? And I actually have always, I mean, this is sort of jumping way ahead, but I've always thought that the way Jonas is really sort of an interesting thing is that he's the tin man in reverse, Mm -hmm. that he's the, you know, instead of having parts slowly replaced by, uh, you know, with metal all in a, what he was, was, um, a metal guy who slowly started to have parts of him replaced with physical uh, or sorry, with biological right. things. But at this point, we have no idea, right? right? And Severian has only described him as a man 
but we know that Severian will talk about tachygens as <laughs> men or women too. So, but yeah, I mean, in the end, we don't know exactly what kind of thing yeah. Jonas was originally. Well, it's hard to say because I think that putting these, you know, human parts onto a robot body that wasn't designed to receive robot, you know, human parts is unlikely and impractical. But then this is a wolf story and he sometimes elides those kind of things just mm-hmm. because it makes sense in a fantasy way. Yeah. Yeah. And that's also a, that gets into those kind of conversations that sometimes bug me a little bit about people arguing in a science fiction thing about, well, you know, I know this one particular obscure fact about how <laughs> one little thing works. And since Wolf is an engineer, he also knew exactly the one particular yeah. obscure thing. Or, and and cared about it. Cared about it deeply. Right. Right. Yeah. So, so I don't know. That's why with Jonas, he never comes right out and says it. And we'll have to talk about this more because of what, Jonas also eventually has a realization about himself, but right. Wolf never ex- explicitly spells out what that is. And I've always thought that maybe he's got some memories of both the biological person and the robot person. And he's kind of had a break and is realizing or yeah. remembering for the first time that he's not one of the. Well, I kind of, I, I find that very credible because we do have actually uh, something like that going on in a later novel by Wolf. Um, Home fires, home fires. That's what it was. Right. 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 Which, which is, seems, feels less likely even than this, but still. Yeah. Right. He, he does, he is familiar with the, with the concept. Yeah. And I always, somebody on the earth list somewhere a long time ago said the thing about Jonas was as the tin man in reverse and knowing that we know how much Wolf loves Oz and Frank Elbaum. Yeah. That just totally made sense to me. It that, does, oh yeah, it, yeah. He started off as a full robot, just like the tin man started off as a real man, but slowly over time he got pieces replaced until yeah. now. Maybe he looks like he's more all biological, but he, yeah. Yeah. So. Well, yeah, maybe he ne- didn't used to have to sleep until he got that head installed on him. And then, yeah. 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 And the big thing there too, of course, is that Talus doesn't have to eat. And so that's, that's the one sort of fact about robots, right? Right. That, that Talus seems to fake it too. And right. So, so is him, but yeah, so that's where it gets weird about like, what do they do with the food? If they're not, you know, like if he's, especially if his body is mostly robot, you know, I don't know, but that then you just start to get into those suggestions about, you know, we just have no idea what yeah. the mechanics of this would be. Well, of course, the protagonist of the book of the short sun also says he pretends to eat most of the time. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah it happens. One last thing about Jonas, too, that I never really noticed until this read when he has this conversation, he's saying things or asking questions and Severian says a couple times, Oh yeah. Well, like I told you it was this. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the same thing with, with his, uh, with Stachys's age, he says, didn't you say he was older? And he's like, well, maybe our age or your age or something. Like yeah. That. It's on, there are two points in the conversation where Jonas's memory of what Severian said seemed faulty. And I'm not sure, but, if that's exactly right, you know, like he says the one and there's small things. There's the thing about the age. And then there's also the thing where he says, Oh yeah. Didn't you say that Merwina had the same hair as Thecla? Yeah. And he's like, well, same color, but different kind of style. And then the same thing about the age, but it comes in so quickly that it stood out to me this time as I, I got to pay attention. Does Jonas also forget 
details along the way. Of or things. he has a normal memory of a normal human memory, right? I guess it's, I guess it could be that, that his is normal compared to that, but he never, I don't remember any other character where Severian kind of has to consistently correct him. So I don't know. I'm just going to hold on to that just as maybe. I mean, yeah. we know that Jonas is going to have some mental and emotional issues later. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so maybe, that. I don't know, is this a sign of it? I don't know. I don't know, but I'm going to pay attention to it as we read the rest. All right, so now they leave. When Zavarian had returned to the inn, he was in his street clothes, and he had to push his way through the crowd that was there to drink. But now he's in his fulligen and mask and carrying Terminus Est on his shoulder without the sheath. And the crowd parts for them like Moses in the Red Sea. There's no sound in the bar. And even the people outside stop talking except whispering. And Zavarian describes the hush talking as if he were walking through a wilderness of leaves. So the scaffold has been set up in the center of the fairgrounds. A colloyer dressed in red stood beside the scaffold, clutching his little formulary. He was an old man, as most of them are. A colloyer is a monk in the Greek Orthodox Church. For Severian colloyers, it seems that red outfits are typical, and that suggests to me that while the color yellow is an indicator of secular authority in the Commonwealth, the color red is the color of religious authority. In the Commonwealth, both monks and nuns wear red instead of black. Uh, mm-hmm. And apparently, cloyers are usually old. So this is probably something people usually retire to doing. Yeah, this is also a detail I'd forgotten, but it does make it seem like there is a little more regularity to the earth religion here Mm -hmm. because we had talked about how i was convinced after reading shadow with all the different names and functions for different religious kinds of things i was like oh it seems like a hodgepodge but now that you you seem to get a little bit more regularity right yeah maybe there is an official religion (laughs) also a formulary is you know like a a written book of prayers and invocations that kind of thing apparently has something about executions in it (laughs) for all occasions (laughs) so marwenna and the cattle thief stand beside the colloyers and also the men who had been hired to extract barnock the alcaldi in his official yellow gown and gold chain Uh, this is like his suit and tie in the commonwealth right the carnifex is not supposed to use the steps to ascend the scaffold no one besides Severian is likely aware of this, but Severian follows the rule anyway. He says, although I have seen Master Gerlo assist his vault to the scaffold with his sword in the court in front of the bell tower. I take this to mean that Gerlo would use his sword to vault himself up the steps without touching them. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's what he means, that he, he uses it not as like a staff, to like like a walking stick, but but that he uses it to help him like pole vault <laughs> over of. the stairs um, up, yeah. above the stairs, as opposed to someplace else on the scaffold. Right. Right. Anyway, Severian looks like a superstar jumping onto the scaffold with his billowing cloak. And there's a huge roar of the crowd quote, like the voice of some beast. And we get a little bit of the invocation by the colloyer that he reads from mm-hmm. his formulary. He says, um, once you read this in create, It is known to us that those who will perish here are no more evil in your sight than we. Their hands run with blood, ours also. 
By thy will they may in that hour have so purified their spirits as to gain thy favor. We who must confront them then, though we spill their blood today. You, the hero who will destroy the black worm that devours the sun. You, for whom the sky parts as a curtain. You, whose breath shall wither vast Erebus, Abaya, and Scylla, who wallow beneath the wave. You, that equally live in the shell of the smallest seed in the farthest forest, the seed that hath rolled into the dark where no man sees. Have mercy on those who had no mercy. Have mercy on us who shall have none now. All right, so we can see that a lot, there's actually a lot of exposition in here, mm-hmm. right? That we, yep. we can see that in the Commonwealth, Erebus, Abaya, and Scylla are particularly seen as demonic influences. We can see that there's a understanding of the black worm that devours the sun, that there's apparently a black hole in the heart of the sun. And that's the first time that comes up, right? We mm-hmm. never really saw that in Shadow, did we? Right. Unless I'm forgetting. I don't know. No, I think this is new. Yeah. And I kind of wonder, you know, Erebus, Abias, Gila being seen as demonic influences. I wonder, maybe, presumably, the Commonwealth is unique in seeing them that way. Yeah, we know the Ashians are all about them. Right. Um, are pretty much controlled by them, I think is how it is. Um, right. And I don't know, because one thing that bugs me is that when Severian comes back from the mines, he's going to have a bunch of questions about these guys for Jonas. And Jonas kind of seems a little surprised i guess that Mm -hmm. severian knows as much as he does and the fact that this guy mentions them here i don't know if it's just that people know these just as names of creatures and maybe don't even really know much about them but i mean here he talks about them as you know things below the waves and um, so that's why i was a little confused about that later when jonah seems surprised that severian knows a bit yeah Uh, i should also mention this is the only time we get the name Scylla, right Right. Yeah. Is this the only time in? That's the only time. Yeah. I this is the only that. time in New Sun. Yeah. It will. She. She will make a reappearance eventually. Yes, she will. Yes, she will. But. Um. But yeah. And honestly, I had totally forgotten about this until I was doing something else with them a while back, and had was pleased to re- find out. I was like, "Oh, Scylla <laughs> actually comes up here." So. Right. So the other thing about Scylla that we ought to ask is if people think or if you think there's any 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 inclination in new sun that wolf was thinking about already this Scylla being in any way connected to what she is in long sun i think that i think if you had asked mark he probably would have a different idea i don't think there's any evidence that he did um Mm -hmm. But I, I feel if I was to put money down on it, I would say that when he was writing Long Sun, he said, well, I need a Megatherian here. I think here's one I've named. So, yeah, that's, that's what I think. But I, I don't really I don't really know. My feeling, I got to say, is that it's not just because there's nothing else in New Sun anywhere that even really talks about the rest of Typhon's family. And um, so that's really the more connection to Typhon and that sort of rulership thing that is where I don't see it um, in any way, just particularly just because there's not only just that we don't get anything with her name here, but also we don't even really get the sense at all about that whole political drama with his family or familial drama, I should say, with with Typhon. Um, Now, which is really interesting. Uh, Yeah. If you if if you 
as I do, extract uh, the Book of the Long Sun to believe that what's going on inside the mainframe is something analogous to what went on in the uh, on Earth after they mm-hmm. left. Right. And and then I can see it. And I do like that the Megatherians get a little bit more of a backstory if you can connect this Scylla to that Scylla. Because then maybe they're a little more interesting. Like, well, then are Erebus and Abaya related to Typhon in any way? I don't know. Yeah. Um, it would seem like if Scylla is going to be somehow connected to that, unless she just happens to take the name of one of the Megatherians, then I don't know. Are, well, who are Erebus and Abaya? Well, there is a brown book story that we'll get to at that I believe uh, Typhon makes an appearance in. So when we cool. get to the, that brown book story, I guess maybe maybe there'll be something in there. I don't know. Awesome. Anyway, just felt like we should say something about that. Because, yeah, I don't think there's anything in the text that really points to it. But since she shows up here and since Scylla is obviously a rather important part of mm-hmm. the last seven books of this series, <laughs> then we should say something about her. But, right. Yeah. Severian is not really paying attention to the Kaloyer. He's checking out the deficiencies in the chopping block. Chopping blocks that are not regulated directly by the guild are considered deficient. The saying is, wide as a stool, dense as a fool, and dished as a rule. This one is too wide and the wood is too hard, but it is at least a little curved upward and not downward like a dish. But even though the wood will dull his blade, he's going to be able to use a different side on each victim, a woman and then a man. Remember, his sword has a male and female edge. Mm-hmm. The order of the executions are chosen at random. And the one who draws a short ribbon, I don't know, goes first or maybe second. I, I just don't know. It turns out that Morwenna, though, is first. And she's coming up the steps with the Alcalde behind her. Behind him is a man with an iron spit that's, I guess, supposed to be used to brand her, but I don't think it is ultimately used that way. Severian says, someone in the crowd shouted an obscene suggestion, and I'm sure it was an original joke that no one had ever heard before, right? When the Kaloyer finishes his invocation and the Alcalde starts his speech, he says, uh, most hatefully and unnaturally, uh, there's some unrecorded bits here of respect for your sex. You shall be branded on the right cheek and the left, your legs broken and your head struck from your body. And again, Severian's not paying close attention to his speech because he's searching the crowd for Agia, but he realizes the Alcaldi's voice sounds a little off. It's different from the way he talks in normal conversation, but also from the rhetorical tone that he used before they extracted Barnock. And that makes him realize that the Alcalde is nervous. Severian says frightened. And Severian deduces that it's because he knows he's going to have to watch the execution done close up, right there in front of him. He's afraid he'll lose it. And his discomfort amuses Severian. No one can see him smile because of his mask, though. There's no brazier of hot coals when the Alcalde talks about Marwenna being branded and Severian hopes that they remembered them. And well, they didn't. Then there's the final bit to his speech. That is apparently a formal tradition. The Alcalde forgets the words twice and Severian has to remind him. He says, 
through the power of the high justice laid upon my unworthy arm by the condescension of the autarch whose thoughts are the music of his subjects, I do now declare your moment has come to you, Marwenna. If you have pleased to the conciliator, speak them now. If you have consuls for the children of women, there will be no voice for them after this. All right, so Marwenna responds clearly, but not loudly. The crowd is hanging on her words. And if you want people to hang on your words, you don't want to speak too loud. She says, I know that most of you think me guilty. I am innocent. I would never do the horrible things you have accused me of. Many of you are my witnesses that I loved Stackies. I love the child Stackies gave me. The good man who read the prayers for me and who has talked to me before I was brought here, prayed that I would forgive you if I achieved bliss before you. I have never until now had it in my power to grant a prayer, but I grant his. I forgive you now. So, Craig, this is another point about the Commonwealth religion. Prayed that I would forgive you if I achieved bliss before you. Does this imply that the Commonwealth believes that there is a purgatory that all people have to endure before they reach heaven, and that everyone who gets to heaven has the power to grant prayers and forgive sins? Hmm. Don't know if that's quite... Yeah, it's hard to know if we can read that much detail into it. Um, It does seem like if you're not going to take this as just sort of a metaphorical way of talking about it, then yeah, maybe so. Um, but we don't really get much talk about an afterlife. No, just anywhere else. Really, just bliss. Right? That's it. Right. Yeah. Um, and I was even trying to think if they ever talk about like, even when Severian's talking about the people who would come uh, like the, the people who do the services in when he's an apprentice, there's never really much a discussion of that um they never really talk about well that the part that sort of surprises me is that there's never really any talk about you know going to join the conciliator mm-hmm. after death right the conciliator here is all within the world the conciliator is going to bring the new son right it's not about something after death it seems like so this stands out to me as interesting because it doesn't really connect to any of that right um so i don't yeah, I don't know. That's but that is if you want to read this as getting into something like that, then yeah, I think that's what it would say. Right. But um I don't know, do you think that do you have any sense if that shows up somewhere else too? It doesn't show up anywhere else as far as yeah. to my knowledge at this time. Uh, keep my mind open. But I mean, there has to be when I think of someone writing this, I think that they wrote it down for a reason. That's an interesting phrase to ask her to forgive them if she achieves bliss before them. They know she's going to die before them. Mm -hmm. So I try, I'm just trying to figure out the mechanics of all that. Yeah. I don't know. Even in long sun, there's not much discussion. Oh yeah. They all go to mainframe. I mean, no, but I mean, there's, there's not, but there's not much. Well, yeah, but that, I mean, that religion, that was, that's just kind of pieced together. And <laughs> it's, so whatever they, they believe about the afterlife is, yeah. you know, is, is, is in the service of someone else. So. Yeah. So instead, this part makes me wonder about, I mean, Severian and Jonas have already brought up her guilt or innocence. And we have to decide through Severian's perspective on what all is going on here, whether or not we think 
you know, Morwenna is innocent or guilty. And the things that she's saying here, especially since she's somehow convinced of killing or poisoning her husband and son, um, it doesn't make sense that she would really be lying here. I mean, she has, it's a a very credible uh, last speech. Yeah. Yeah. That she has really nothing to, to gain by saying this because it's actually peaceful. You know, you would think if someone had killed their husband and son that they would want to take their last moments to, you know, get in one last jab at somebody or or, or plea for, for, Oh, I didn't do it. I didn't. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Or maybe even, you know, plea for forgiveness and sort Mm -hmm. of admit it. Oh yeah. Yeah, You know, yeah. Before I die, let me just come clean. So, yeah. So I don't think, um, yeah, this is the part that to me makes me think, yeah, she, she's innocent. Yeah. In the middle of Morwenna's speech, Eusebia comes up to the scaffolding with a bouquet of roses. The bouquet has finally made its appearance. Yep. They are the purple black roses that we're familiar with from the necropolis. And now we learn that people carry bouquets of them at funerals. And she uses the thorny stems of the rose to beat a path through the crowd. And as she approaches the scaffold, she's inhaling the bouquet uh, deeply. I just love the name, too, that he calls them the Threnotic Roses. Yeah. It's just oh, such a yeah, cool yeah. word. Threnody is like a lament. A song of lamentation. Yeah. 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 So they're these, they're like mourning, M-O-U-R, mourning roses. Lamentation, dirge, right? Yeah. So they're for a funeral. Like is that a real word? Did he create that? Uh, that Threnody? Th- no, Threnody? Threnotic. Oh, Threnotic. Same as, oh, there is a word, Threnotic. Same as Threnodial. I guess Threnotic is probably better. I just love that word. Just sounds yeah. so cool. It's fun to no, say. No, no, no. It, 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 it's, it's one of those words that sounds like what it means, right? Yeah. You can almost hear the organs playing as the, as you say, thronautic. Yeah. As she approaches the scaffold, she's inhaling the bouquet deeply and she gets to the scaffold. She says, still holding the bouquet, these are for you, Merwena. Die before they fade. Which is a rather clever and dramatic way to say, die, bitch. <laughs> And one thing to point out, Wolf specifically says that she's sniffing them pretty hardcore already. Okay. Yeah. Um, I know it's, there's another scene later on where after it happens and she sticks her face in them and pulls really hard, right. but she's already, she's already smelling yeah. them deeply she's, now. Yeah. Which yeah. I think is an important point. Yeah. And Severian uses the blunt point of his sword to call for silence, like a judge's gavel. Since there's no mention of the crowd noise, I'm guessing that the hammering was for Eusebia. To be quiet. Yeah. But at that moment, Severian notices the guy standing next to her. Mr. Gaptoothed. It's Haythor. <laughs> and he gives Severian a wave. <laughs> yeah, which is just so funny. It's so yeah. cool. You've got this like gothic image of the woman with the purple <laughs> roses saying, You will die soon. And then there's there's Heather waving. Hi there. Hey. <laughs> so awesome. Rowena says to Severian, Are you ready? And he says, I am, which is good because that's kind of, you know, it's kind of the opposite of what you'd expect it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And again, just going back to kind of her innocence, it almost seems like, you know, she's made peace. She's forgiven everyone Mm -hmm. who's accused her. And she's also more comfortable now than everybody else. And Severian's even going to admit in a few minutes that, oh, yeah, it turns out I was actually pretty nervous while all this was going on. She's the only one who's completely calm. Yeah. So it doesn't appear that the Alcalde remembered the brazier of hot 
coals. But the good thing is that Jonas did because he puts a bucket of them on the scaffold with a hot iron sticking out. It was inscribed with whatever was considered appropriate for her crime. And so Jonas wasn't lying about literally going to fetch and carry. Yeah, no, that's exactly, <laughs> they know what he's supposed to do. Yeah. And there was no chair. Severian gives the Alcalde a look, but the mayor just stares back. This is a really a great scene that you can really imagine in your head. All everything about this, by the way. And finally, Severian says, "Um, do we have a chair, Your Worship?" And he says, uh, "I sent two men for one and some rope." And Severian can sense the crowd getting restless, and he says, "When?" And he says, "A few moments ago." And Severian had clarified yesterday that everything was supposed to be ready before they started. But, you know, what's the point now? Again, Severian has an urban disdain of rural government. You want to read this part? There is no one, as I have since found, so liable to fluster on the scaffold as the average rural official. He is torn between an ardent desire to be the center of attention, a position closed to him at an execution, and the quite justified fear that he lacks the ability and training that might enable him to comport himself well. The most cowardly client, mounting the steps and the full knowledge that his eyes are to be plucked out, will in 19 cases from a score conduct himself better. Even a shy Cenobite, which is a nun, unused to the sounds of men and diffident to the point of tears, can be better relied on. So someone in the crowd shouts, get it over with! And Severian starts to worry. Rowena has, he says, a famished face and a clear complexion, pensive smile and large, dark eyes. Later, Severian's going to note her pale, long eyelashes. He says, she was a prisoner likely to arouse a quite undesirable feelings of sympathy in the crowd. Right. And it's a whole point here and even everything he's saying about how, you know, even the prisoner can be calmer. I mean, he's already shown us that she is the one who kind of prods him to get it moving. Mm -hmm. And it makes this whole thing start to seem like, you know, is Severian also showing off a lot of nerves? Like, I mean, seeing the two of them up there, it's kind of weird. Like, cause I imagine just this odd pause. Cause then he says right. that the you know things are going up, but Severian actually kind of pauses there too. And I'm sure it just looks totally awkward. Um, but yeah, all the kind of things he's saying about the the quote unquote rural governors um, are things that are could well be true of him too. That you know he mm -hmm. wants to show off that he's yeah. doing well and that he's in control, but at the same time he feels like you know he feel fear that he lacks the ability and training that might enable him to comport himself well. Right, right. I mean that's that's kind of everything he's not saying here. So another way that Severian's arrogance kind of comes in as a as a way to mask his insecurity. Sure. And Severian tries to improvise. He offers to just have her sit on the block. And he adds uh, a bit of snark. He says, it's more suited to that anyway. And the alcalde says, well, there's nothing to tie her with. Severian doesn't give him his opinion of people who require their prisoners bound. He puts his sword down and helps Merwena sit on the block. And he says, I lifted my arms in the ancient salute. I wonder what that looks like. Yeah, I don't know if it's just like raising both of your hands up in the air. Mm -hmm. Don't know. Then he says, I took the iron in my right hand and gripping her wrists with my left, administered the brand to either cheek and then held the iron still glowing almost white. The scream had silenced the crowd for an instant. Now they roared. Now, 
the alcalde is really feeling his oats. He starts directing from the side. Let them see her. That's just what he didn't want. Remember, he's afraid that she's going to evoke sympathy. So he helps her stand up and they walk around the front of the scaffold hand in hand like it's a kind of, quote, country dance. And then Hathor is just eating this up. He's telling everyone around him what great friends he and Severian are and where he'd seen him before and before. And Eusebia is loving it too. She's holding her bouquet to Morwenna and says, here, you're going to need these soon. And then Severian looks to the alcalde for his signal to proceed, but the alcalde seems unaware at first that that's his job. And Severian at last seats her on the block and picks up his sword. Severian's frustration with delay is nothing compared to Marwenna. She's whispered, will it be over soon? And he says, it's almost over now. Close your eyes. Try to remember that almost everyone who has ever lived has died, even the conciliator who will rise at the new sun. Now, this is the first implication in this book, I think, that there is a religious tradition that the conciliator died. Mm-hmm. And if we assume that Severian's conciliator performed the same acts that Severian did in Earth of the New Sun, what evidence does anyone have of that? Of course, this could refer to the multiple Severian's theory that Severian had died and been replaced multiple times. It can refer to that body in Severian's mausoleum in the necropolis, mm-hmm. that problematic body, I think, in the necropolis. But no one who would have recorded this tradition would know anything about that. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Um, and I, I get the sense that Wolf was maybe trying to kind of leave it vague, but also, you know, there's the tying to the actual Christian story. Maybe once we get to earth, he comes up with another way to do it there or to, to retell it in a different way there. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know, but, uh, but it also could mean something more specific. And yeah, we just don't know. Like, I don't think there's any other time. I did look and I, I haven't checked everything, but I don't think there's any other time, at least in the four books, that Wolf talks about the conciliator being reborn, that usually it's always just bringing the new sun, mm-hmm. that that's, or, or fighting the worm, as they say here, that comes yeah. up once or twice more. But, but the idea that he gets reborn too, isn't something that's the most repeated part of the legend. Right. Yeah, so I don't know. But the the one thing that does change here for me is that Severian's tone changes. And for a moment, even if it's just a moment, he starts to show a little bit of pity, right? Like right. he actually leans down and speaks just to Morwenna in a way that I think he doesn't have to at all. That's not part of his training and talks about, you know, tries to give her some hope and mercy. And then we even find out that how he's going to do it in a second. I mean, he doesn't waste any time. Um, you know, like, I mean, I know we're going to talk about it in a second, but he has to like break her legs and mm-hmm. then you know, immediately he cuts her head off, like in right. one strong swoop. And so he doesn't let her feel pain very much. So right. even though there's all this, uh, like the way I've been talking about it, and there's all this nervousness and even some arrogance that comes up when it gets down to it, Severian tries to make something good of a horrible situation yeah. and his nerves seem to flee him and he actually does perform well. and is as kind as he can possibly be to Merwinna. And it's technically complicated what he's doing. He has a he has a yeah. real sense of professionalism about it, which makes you kind of imagine a bunch of apprentices out in the backyard of the mannequin, you know, all practicing their beheadings. 
Yeah. <laughs> so after Severian tells her that, she closes her eyes. And when Severian raises his sword, the crowd goes silent. And then he brought the flat of the blade, like you said, down on her legs, breaking both femurs with a double crack. He says, the crack of a winning boxer's left hand and right hand blows. There's just a moment when Moena kind of hangs there on the block. She's fainted, but she hasn't fallen over. And Severian steps back and removes her head with one horizontal sweep. Severian notes that it's much more difficult to master than the downward stroke. And, you know, like I said, that's imagine that. How do they practice that? I don't know. But it is, it does give the sense that he's being merciful there in a second because he's not then like making her move. And while she's screaming, having her lay her head on the thing mm-hmm. so he can chop it downwards, which I take it he actually planned to do because right. he was right With talking about how the chair and then the, uh, the whole point about this block is good because it's got a little upward curve to it so that when I chop into it, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be more efficient. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but yeah. He doesn't do that. He does what he says is a harder thing. And right. I do think we're supposed to read that as even though he gives himself a little bit of a brag there of, you know, yeah. And it was much harder to master. Um, he's also saying that he did something harder to, to make her suffer just yeah. a little less. And still, this is the high point of Severian's career before it becomes, you know, routine and all about business. <laughs> he is over the moon about this. He yep. has actually pulled off this whole difficult arrangement. The crowd is watching. It's visually spectacular. Why don't you read the next, this part here. Okay. To be candid, it was not until I saw the upjetting fountain of blood and heard the thud of the head striking the platform that I knew I had carried it off. Without realizing it, I had been as nervous as the alcalde. I wanted to laugh and caper. The alcalde was shaking my shoulder and babbling as I wished to myself. I couldn't hear what he said. I held up my sword and taking the head by the hair, held it up to and paraded the scaffold. Not a single circuit this time, but again and again, three times, four times, a breeze had sprung up. It dotted my mask and arm and bare chest with scarlet. (laughs) The crowd was shouting the inevitable jests. Will you cut my wife's or husband's hair too? Half a measure of sausage when you're done with that. Can I have her hat? I laughed at them all and was feigning to toss the head to them when someone plucked at my ankle. Ah, things take an awful turn here. Oh, you got to admit it is a little awful parenting around with a head. Yeah, well, no, he's he's, 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 no, he's, he's like a, he's having a great time. Look, it's all over. Everyone loves him. He's got, oh, hey, I'm throw you the head here. You know, he's, he's goofing off with the crowd. He feels like a big shot. It was Eusebia. And I knew before her first word that she was under that compulsion to speak I had often observed among the clients in our tower. Her eyes were sparkling with excitement, and her face was twisted by her attempt to get my attention, so that she looked simultaneously older and younger than she had appeared before. I couldn't make out what she was shouting and bent to listen. Innocent! She was innocent! And he just nods. He's not going to school her in the fact that guilt and innocent are irrelevant to a carnifex. And then she keeps yelling, she took Stachys from me. Now she's dead. Do you understand? She was innocent after all, but I am so glad. And he says, I nodded and made another circuit of the scaffold, holding up her head. I killed her, not you. Whatever. (laughs) 
Innocent. I knew her. So careful. She would have kept something back. Poison for herself. She would have died before you got her. So she's saying that if Morwena had done it, she'd have made a plan to kill herself if she was arrested, which implies that Eusebia thinks poisoning is not out of the possibility for Morwena. It's just that she says she didn't do this one. I don't know. Is that right? Uh, it's a weird, it's a little bit weirdly phrased. Like I take it, it's either something like that or something like that. She wouldn't just poison the other two, but she'd kill herself too. Right. If that happened, but it's, it's, it's weird because she's saying, no, she didn't do it. And I, so I have no idea what the motivation for killing Stackus mm-hmm. and her son would have been. Right. Um, it's yeah, it's a weird thing. Like I wonder, did Wolf have something in mind here that just didn't get communicated quite well? Cause I, <laughs> I, yeah, I, I it feels like maybe all the women in this area are secret poisoners to one scent or another. Right, right. But, you know, Severian says, well, you know, so it was somebody else or sickness after all. And, and the crowd had gotten quieter and people were starting to listen. Severian shouts, to the Demiurge alone belongs justice. And But she stole my Stachys and now she's gone. Oh, wonderful. She's gone. And suddenly... Eusebia plunges her face into the bouquet of roses and breathes it in. Jonas hands Severian some red flannel to wipe his sword blade. And then Severian drops Moena's head into the basket. And then he sees Eusebia lying in the grass with everyone looking down on her. And Severian claims, at the time, I thought little of it, only supposing that her heart had failed her in excess joy. Later that afternoon, the Alcalde had her bouquet examined by an apothecary who found among the petals a strong but subtle poison he could not identify. Muena must, I suppose, have had it in her hand when she mounted the steps and must have cast it into the blossoms when I led her around the scaffold after the branding. All right, shall we talk about how plausible Severian's explanation is? (laughs) And if we agree, as I think we will, that it is not plausible, let's discuss why Severian wants this explanation to be true. Yeah. So it just doesn't make any sense. Yeah. I mean, the idea that this prisoner had kept some poison, like, I mean, even, even Eusebia says, yeah, she would have kept some poison, but then somehow knew that Eusebia would be bringing some flowers and that she would be paraded around Mm -hmm. the the edge of the thing after being branded when she's in terrible pain, remember? And know that she could just at that moment sprinkle the poison that she kept in her hand through being branded right on the flowers that she kind of knew were going to be there and Eusebia was definitely going to be in the front row. Yeah, I have no clue (laughs) that could even... (laughs) remotely be possible that's yeah, yeah that's that's absurd especially when yeah. you have well you have someone claiming to have done the deed yeah yeah so i i think i think that despite all of severian's talk about how it doesn't matter to the guild if someone is guilty or innocent i think it is evident here that it does matter mm-hmm particularly for Moena, for whatever reason, but so much so that even at the point of writing this memoir years later, Severian cannot bring himself to accept something 
anyone looking at the scene must accept. Eusebia confessed to a motive for killing Stachys and Chad, and by killing herself with an unidentifiable poison, demonstrated that she had the means and opportunity. This is a problem for even a nominally ethical man like Severian, like Gurlo. They yep. are called on to be nothing but a mindless tool of the state, but being a mindless tool of the state for this job requires constant mindfulness. It's impossible. Yeah, and we know that Gurlo's was going a little wacky towards yeah. the end. Mm-hmm. Talk all about that. And yeah, in this way, he can still convince himself that even though he can yell, yeah, you know, only the the uh, oh shoot, does the he say demiurge, yeah. So even though he can say that only the demiurge is the one who has justice, he worries about it, right? Yeah. Otherwise, this wouldn't he wouldn't need the you know he doth protest too much at the end, <laughs> as it were. Uh, and by the way, that word demiurge, that's where if you want to start getting into how this is Gnosticism, that's mm-hmm. that's a good that. Perfect Gnostic word for this, but I don't think we're going to, we don't have to go there right now. <laughs> but um, the next question is, how do you think Eusebia died? Like, what do you think was going on? Well, I think that's already determined. She had a poison inside her petals. She intended to kill herself after confessing, yeah. after exactly. triumphing over the fact that she had killed her because she stole stackies from yeah. her. She was young. Uh, perhaps even a teenager when she ended up marrying Stackies. Eusebia was in love with him. We don't know what the story is, but she was incredibly murderously uh, hostile and jealous of her. Yeah. And also it just totally makes more sense that if she's the one who actually killed Stackis and the other one, that she would have the poison. Right. right. So um, yeah, and the fact that she's already kind of sniffing at it before things start, you know, she's kind of getting the process moving is how I think about it yeah. a little bit. I mean, we don't know the actual mechanics of the poison, but it just seems, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't matter. It's a point. The point is that she knows her poisons. <laughs> yeah. So. yeah. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right that what this does is it's a way to show Severian going way out of his way to try and convince himself that it was okay what he did. Mm-hmm. Yes. Even after all this time, add to that too the fact that Merwena reminds him of Thecla. And this is, that's another reason in addition to just the, the general ethical and professional thing about what they're doing. Also the fact that she reminds him of Thecla means that he's even more worried that he did the right thing, that he didn't unnecessarily kill her um, or that he had somehow judged her incorrectly. Mm-hmm. So those connections too make it, just all the more important. And he feels guilt also over Thecla. Oh yeah. He's, he kind of admits his guilt later on, but he never admits his guilt over Moena, but they do seem to be extricably, inextricably tied. Yeah. So yeah, I, I don't find the, the idea that Moena killed Yusebia by sneaking poison into her bouquet. I just don't find that credible. But on the other hand, uh, Lexicon Earthus seems to accept the theory that she did. And I know Mark Aramini believes she did. And actually, you know, I was talking to, on Reddit, Mike Farrar it was so impassioned and so detailed. He had just listing all these reasons why it just had to be so that Marwena killed Eusebia that I went ahead and reached out to him and I recorded a little conversation with 
uh, with Mike actually explaining why it is he thinks that Morwenna killed Eusebia. Awesome. Let's just run that. So you guys know how Craig and I feel about this whole thing, but Mike has very strong opinions. I mean, look, it, they're actually kind of in line with uh, Michael Andre Driussi's and Mark Aramini's position, but I want to bring Mike on because Mike's, well, his prosecution of Merwena was so emphatic and so strong that I just really thought he would be the perfect person to lay it out and make the argument. So let's, let's hear it. Why is it self-evident that Marwenna is guilty? Yeah, I, I guess just to start, um, I didn't even know this was like a, a topic of debate. I thought this was one of the like settled matters of the, the book. Um, and then I heard uh, Mets and Phil on the Alice Ball Soup podcast bring it up. And um, it just blew my mind that anybody thought Eusebia killed Marwenna's family and uh, it wasn't Marwenna. So I guess to start off, I start right at the beginning of chapter one with the dream sequence. And you have um, Severian uh, describing himself as the increase looking through a rent in time. And what he sees is um, Morwenna's, he's, he's seeing kind of forward in the future to her execution. And then as she, as her severed head is kind of mouthing words, he, he kind of flashes back to the deaths of her family, where you see Chad and uh, the husband, Statius, I think his name is. Mm-hmm. They're both in agony and they're they're dying and Chad's got a fever and, and Statius is like writhing in bed. And so the image that always stuck with me are, Marwana has been decapitated, she's, but she's mouthing words, they don't mean anything. And yet we see the images of her family and they're just in agony. So that's where I start. And I figure if Moana is innocent, she's like the only character in New Sun that is innocent. Because you've got this whole rogues gallery of just <laughs> spies and traitors. You've got Thecla, spy. You've got Hanna, who's her maidservant and Thea's maidservant. She's like an accomplice and she covers up for Thecla and Thea's activity. So even though the, the horrible things that happened to her in the Metachin, uh Tower... Like she is a traitor pretty much as well. Yeah, she awful. is guilty of what she's been sent there for, right? Right. It's awful, but and then you got Agilus and, and you got Syriaca and, and Barnock and everybody's guilty. <laughs> you know, Barnock's a spy. Syriaca's a, a serial adulterer. That doesn't warrant a death sentence, but they're all guilty. So I figure that it's kind of the pattern is we're not seeing people that aren't guilty. And I kind of take Severian's word for it here that he's whatever he becomes. It's like in the book, you can think he's like some sort of uh, machine created deity or he's some sort of actual deity, but he is like the Incree. He's seen backwards and forwards with time through time with his new son powers. And he's seeing that she's guilty. He's seeing that she poisoned her family. And then I guess the, the next place I go is, um, I guess, him and Jonas talking. It always, I love Jonas, but it always bugs me <laughs> that he's. Do we do agree that Jonas thinks that Morwenna was innocent? Yes. Right? And 
I think Jonas is just kind of a, a very confused robot. I mean, he seemed really stuck on women's physical beauty. He falls for Yolenta, and maybe it's because of the cybernetic enhancements, but he is stuck on her physical beauty. And then he's also stuck on Moana's physical beauty. He mentions it like three or four times in their conversation. Oh, you said she's really good looking. Do you think that's why they think she's innocent? And it, that just never made sense to me, but it also never made sense as I, you know, as we discover that Jonas is a robot, why he, he's so attracted to, to human women. Um, so I don't really take anything Jonas says about Morwenna. I don't value his, his, uh, his judgment on this one. And also, like, he does a real head game on Severian because he keeps, in their conversations, he keeps comparing Morwenna to Thecla, who's Severian's love, who's just died, like, two, three, four days ago. And I, mm-hmm. I think that gets Severian's head, you know, all turned around, too. Um, well, do you think that he thinks that Severian thinks she's innocent? That's what it seems to me. It seems like he's looking at Severian and he's saying that Severian thinks she's innocent. He's not saying so. He's denying and rejecting it. But do you think that, that Jonas honestly thinks that Severian thinks she's innocent? No, I, I think um, Jonas is just confused. And like I said, I don't understand Jonas at all. I don't understand his character. I don't understand you know, why he's so obsessed with uh, Yolenta, why he comes back for her as Miles. I don't, I'm, that's really never made sense to me, but this, this execution always made sense to me. <laughs> I guess, I guess putting aside Jonas, I guess my next thing is the actual execution itself. I always looked at it like a, um, like a perversion of the Catherine, the wheel execution. So you have Catherine and she's innocent and there's this divine intervention where the wheel she's to be broken on, you know, breaks and blooms roses. And you have these red roses there, you know, uh, in this, I guess, instance, they're symbolizing innocence or divine intervention or whatever. But the instrument of torture breaks. And yet mm-hmm. the autark from, you know, offstage says, uh, cut off her head, kill her anyways. And that's an awesome connection. <laughs> Mike. That's something I don't think I've heard anywhere else. And that's really good. Well, yeah, and like I said, it took, I think, eight or nine readings of this to finally bring that together. And then you have the, the torturers in that uh, pageant play. They're begging Catherine for forgiveness. Oh, please, we don't want to do this. And they see her as an agent of God. And but they're still bound by their duty. So they still are going to go through with it. But they want a forgiveness. And she tells them, you know, strike and fear not. You know, mm-hmm. then you go to Morwenna and Morwenna on the block She's mouthing these empty words. She's saying, oh, I talked to the religious official and he said, I should forgive you people, even though you're doing this awful stuff to me. And so I forgive you. And she's doing it in this very pageanty way where she she's speaking very clearly, but very softly. So the people are drawn in to listen to her. It's this real like gamesmanshipy kind of moment for her. Like she's enjoying this last moment, you know, on the stage for whatever reason. And um, I think that it even got to that point because of Eusebia um, admitting that she framed her the night before. Um, yes. Yeah. Eusebia goes to the riverbank and she's taunting her. And um, and it's that moment because I think Moana's at the riverbank and 
um, Cerverian says something to the effect of nobody molested her. And that's very rare, almost unheard of, especially with a beautiful woman. Like nobody molested her, nobody threw stones. Only one person came and that person even didn't get close enough to physically assault her. She just was assaulting her with words, you know, telling her, I framed you, you're going to get tortured tomorrow. And I think Eusebia's thought was Morwenna, who's, I guess, an expert poisoner, would poison herself and die. And that would, you know, Eusebia would get her revenge that way. So then we go to the next day and Morwenna's on the block and Eusebia sees her, her face, her cheeks burned, her legs are broken. You know, she's in like quite a, a lot of pain and then she's beheaded. And that just blows Eusebia's mind because she, she thought Moron would just poison herself harmlessly. And, and again, with the poison, what always struck me is the poison that's used, whether you believe it was Moana poisoning Eusebia, Eusebia poisoning herself at the end, that poison's painless and almost instantaneous. Whereas you had Chad and Statius like writhing in agony. So, and I don't know what I'm trying to say about that. Other than I think that Moana did it and she used a poison on her family that made him die in pain. So I think she's just another one of these people, a new son, who's just a horrible person that we're shown over and over again that there's this horrible cast of characters. And that's kind of driving home the point that the, the earth is decadent, depraved, depleted, and, and just needs renewal. Well, what about Severian's explanation for how Merwenna actually killed Eusebia? Does that sound credible to you? It does, because, again, when you're in that moment, he's praying her around, Eusebia's shouting stuff, Heather shows up. <laughs> I mean, there's just this whole, and then, of course, we have the Hethor repelling Jonas or Jonas repelling Heather, but Heather's there. Jonas is somewhere backstage, so he doesn't probably see what's going on because he doesn't like being around Heather for whatever reason. So you have this scrum, and then, and then the whole time when, when you see you thrust herself forward and she's like, the roses show up again, except they're black roses now. They're the, the funerary roses, the death roses, and she shoves them up there. Here, Moena, here's your death roses, you know, uh, whatever she says, something about. Right, right. You're going to need these. You're right. going to need these because you're, you're going to die. And, um, and I think at that moment, with Severian distracted by Hathor and all the other madness, basically, <clears throat> I think that's when um, Morwenna uses her poison. Jonas is there, too, watching, right? Right. But like I said, I think, I think when Hathor shows up and Hathor's there front row center and he's mm-hmm. you know, making Hathor noises, I think that kind of, for whatever reason, whether Jonas and Hathor were shipmates it seems like when Jonas shows up in the narrative or when Heather shows up in the narrative, Jonas disappears or rides off or, you know, he mm. gets far away. And then you come to, I guess, the strongest piece of evidence for me is, is Eusebius confession after the, after um, Marwana is beheaded, after Severian capering around the block and losing his composure and kind of hamming it up. Eusebia comes forward and she says, I killed her. You didn't kill her. I killed her. And Severian's like, whatever. And um, she's like, I knew her. She was so careful. She would have held poison back. 
But because she didn't, I'm, now I'm not so sure that she killed her family. And in that moment, she says, you know, she didn't, she doesn't say I killed the family. She just says, I don't know if Morwenna killed her family because like I said, Eusebia's mind has been blown by seeing Morwenna die in agony because she thought wow. she would, you know, use the poison painlessly kind of off herself, you know, off stage and never get to the moment up there, um, you know, on the scaffolding. So that's really all I have. <laughs> but, um, that's excellent. But yeah, um, yeah, I just, I think that's the strongest piece there is that Eusebia never confesses to killing uh, Chad and Stasis. And that's the life she wanted. She wanted to be, you know, the wife. She wanted the children. And she's this woman who was denied all that. And she's kind of just this bitter old crone. And she is guilty because she fingers Morwenna for the murders and she has no idea if Morwenna really did it. So that's her crime. She bore a false witness against her neighbors. And again, in Earth, that's a death sentence. You know, I think when when Eusebia goes to the river's edge the night before and taunts her and and she tells Morwenna then, I'm the one that got you arrested. I'm, of course, I, I guess like we don't see the trial off screen. So maybe Morwenna already knew this. But uh-huh. but Eusebia goes there and she goads her and she, you know, she taunts her. And I think that's the moment when Morwenna switched from I'll poison myself painlessly, die painlessly, and I will save this poison and hope that this bitter old, you know, crone gets close by where I can use it on her. And I know it seems like so far fetched with the bouquet and the but everything kind of lines up for me. And I guess mm. the biggest thing is I always trust it sounds like goofy, but I trust Severian because I know he tells us facts out of order and I know he mm-hmm. holds stuff back, but it seems to me by the end of Citadel, he's told us just about everything, you know, that we need to know. Well, I absolutely agree that Severian is honest to the degree he can be. I will agree with that. Um, as, as me and Craig have, have st- spoken together, I think that Severian is having a hard time <laughs> all his life dealing with this. I, I don't, I, I, I kind of, I think that Jonas is our omniscient uh, narrator. He's playing that role, even though Severian is still the uh, first person narrator. And we're getting a perspective of an outsider on Severian that he can't provide to himself. But, you know, it's not like you're the only, this is a unique theory. You're, you're not the only one who believes that Morwenna must be guilty. Right. Because it's right there. So what can I say? Yeah. Well done. <laughs> you have presented your case quite well, sir. Oh, thank you. And there's one more moment that I think a lot of the, um, the people that believe Morwenna to be, Morwenna to be innocent use. And that's the point where uh, little Severian touches um, Typhon's ring and is incinerated. And I guess so at that point, I don't guess at that point, Severian thinks of Morwenna and people are like, Oh, he's thinking of Morwenna because here's a, a child dying. And, and I'm like, yeah, he's thinking of her. The child's dying. And it's the, the visceral, it's the, the smell, you know, the smell of 
burning flesh is uh-huh. as gross as that sounds. That's what he's remembering because he branded her cheeks. And here, mm-hmm. here it is that um, little Severian's dying. And but it's completely, you know, uh, Severian wasn't the best uh, protector of little Severian, but he, he tried a decent amount. He goes back for him in the, the village of the music of the magicians. And um, unlike, I think, Morwenna, who, like I said, I think she's a bad mother and a bad <laughs> and a bad wife. And I think she got bored. And I think um, I think when Gene Wolfe gives us these little crumbs about, uh, you know, the things Severian says about the people, the village were afraid of her. Um, that's why no one went to the, the riverside. I think that clues us in that she's a pretty dangerous woman. And I think even... Uh, um, Alcalde on the block, he's, he's very flustered in the block. And it, and normally, um, the day before when he breaks down Barnock's door, he's, he's like um, a man of action. His words and his deeds are just, he's like capable and on point on the, uh-huh. on the block. He's a mess. I think he's a mess because he's just a little bit scared of Moana too. And he doesn't know what's going to happen he, until she's dead. I think He's kind of like, well, we'll see what goes on here, but he's nervous. So another stupid little tidbit, but. <laughs> well, well done. Well done. Thank you. Thank you a lot, Mike. No problem. All right. So that was, that was really interesting and actually uh, very productive. Mike included a little uh, uh, written rundown of his reasoning after we talked and it's pretty good. Maybe he'll post it. But the fifth point I think is something that we didn't actually cover in our conversation. He says, Moena fights for the new son in Yesen in earth, the new son. That is the moment in his opinion that he admits her guilt and the moment of her redemption. So what do you think? Have you changed your mind? I'm, <laughs> I'm trying to think cause I don't, I don't, no, I mean, the thing in Earth seems like it could be suggesting something because of the redemption. So, yeah, his, what he says is that um, Morwenna fights for the new son in Yesid, and that's the moment she admits her guilt and the moment of her redemption. And I don't think she officially, like, there's not dialogue where she says she was guilty, but I think what he's saying is that the fact that she fights for him is kind of like, admitting her guilt, but that she still recognizes that he did the right thing. Right. Kind of thing. Well, of course he, his, his position is that everybody in this book is guilty of something. So naturally she's going to be guilty of the, of something too. Right. And that could well be, but I, I still, I mean, the thing I keep coming back to is just, I find it hard to believe that she had this poison the whole time that she was hiding it somehow by sitting out at the lake, she had the poison. And um, I mean, if she was going to kill herself, why did she wait until right. the very last second to do it? It just, I mean, that just is the part to me that seems weird, <laughs> just very weird. And uh, I, I don't know. And it, it just makes more sense to me that Eusebia would kill herself. I mean, that's why she admits it. I think that she screams it out, not just to Severian, but basically to everybody. Yeah. I think my reaction is kind of the same as Mike's, but in reverse. Um, mm-hmm. it's startling to me that people think Morwenna is guilty <laughs> and as much, just like he felt, well, I didn't know there was any argument that Morwenna yeah. <laughs> would not be guilty. He's by Severian says it right there. So yeah, that, that 
actually is just fun to me, that fascinating part. Like that's mm-hmm. one thing that I've always about, not just this book, but every book, how people have sort of basic assumptions about, oh, well, this is an obvious thing and are surprised that not only that other people disagree, but the sort of vehemence that yeah. people would have when it's something just seems so patently obvious yeah. to, to you. Yeah. Um, so I think that's kind of cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I feel like with Wolf, there are actually a lot of times where mm-hmm. people have those opposite reactions like that. Um, and the sort of cryptic way that he presents things opens it up to that. But I'm, and not that this is necessarily super cryptic, but I do think that, yeah, the nature of it is Severian having to rebuild things from suppositions. And right. so that's from the very beginning, it's, it's open to that. Yeah. Um, so I'm not at all saying that Mike is wrong. I mean, if, if I thought he was totally wrong, we wouldn't be playing it on the show. <laughs> but, um, you know, if I was ridiculous. But um, but yeah, I think for me, it's it's more the implausibility of what it does. And that also then it's important to me that the it sets Severian up as kind of naive and misreading the situation. Mm-hmm. Like that to me is the real kind of big takeaway from that. So, so to have it go this way, I mean, everything that he says is a really cool sort of... Um, almost allegorical way to put all these things together yeah, and to make a point out of it. And I really like it. I mean that I think if it wasn't for the fact that just the mechanics of her still having the poison just seem so implausible to me, then the rest of everything he says is really cool and convincing. Right. I think. But I, that's, that's the step I just can't, can't quite get over. Well, I definitely, I definitely like his association with Marwenna's execution and uh, Catherine's at the elevation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Okay. We should talk about uh, the demiurge. He mentioned demiurge. Only yeah. the de- the demiurge, you know, decides and judges guilt and all. Right. We have an increate. We talk all about the increate. People pray yep. to the increate. This is the first and maybe the only reference we have to the demiurge. Right. So in a typical Gnostic cosmos, what you have is the actual God, like the increate who is the one who I won't say creates the whole world, but actually is what allows everything to exist. Mm -hmm. Then what you have is a demiurge who's kind of like a second God who creates this world, which is a fallen imperfect world. And Gnosticism is usually about learning how all the things of this fallen world are false so that you can get back to the real God. -hmm. So the demiurge is a, is a creator God who is sometimes seen as just not as good as the real God uh, and sometimes seen as outright demonic. So like if you're a Philip K. Dick fan, what he talks about with Gnosticism, he was, he'll go through all kinds of things talking about how, Oh yeah, there's a, there's a demiurge or there's a a version of God. That's just a horrible evil God. And he's got even some really cool stories about this. um, Who's created this horrible, horrible world of illusion and awfulness. And the real thing is to get beyond that to the truth. Right. Lies after, and usually after death and after getting rid of your body and getting rid of your finite soul and all kinds of stuff like that. Yes, exactly. So the one tricky thing is that if you're going to hear have the demiurge being the one who has justice, it makes it seem like, the demiurge is not going to be that really harsh version of God of a, of a creator God. That or it's not he like is. The, He's the one who perhaps torments people, sends them to hell, puts them through uh, purgatory if they have a purgatory. That's, that's interesting. Cause then it's sort of like Severian saying he, all justice belongs to him. And mm-hmm. sometimes it's wrong and false, <laughs> but it's, it's his fault. It's not ours because right. we live in a 
sad world. That's kind of cool. That's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Who are you trying to convince the variant? Yeah. Um, but I know I've seen some things on earth before where people try to, to get really sophisticated with like, well, is like Briya sort of the, the false world. And then yes, it is the, the better world. That's something like that. I don't know. I mean, if you really want to try and pull a whole lot of sort of metaphysical details out of little notes like this, you can. Um, it's inviting because, you know, they are Gnostic and Kabbalistic terms. Yeah, absolutely. So at last, Severian alerts the reader that this memoir is not going to be some kind of torture porn. If that's why you're reading this, <laughs> you might as well stop now. Agalus's execution was important. Morwenna's was unusual. Although he performed some more executions along the way, we are t- expected to understand that they are undescribed and that you can just assume that they happen. He says, well, when I describe my travels, you are to understand that I practice the mystery of our guild where it was profitable to do so, though I do not mention the specific occasions. So he performed whatever operations were required on the cattle thief and then executed him. And that's all. But yeah, but it's also fits really well with the idea that he, he's feeling guilty and sort of writing this again and going through it has brought up a lot of stuff. And he's like, okay, that's enough of that. Yeah. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to have to have work through my conscience on every single thing that I did. And so we're just kind of, kind of brush off some of that. Stuff. Right. Right. But it also is an important reminder too, that as you read the rest of this, Whatever you're thinking about Severian, remember that the whole time he's still torturing and killing people mm-hmm. all through yeah. this novel and <laughs> most of the rest of it too. Right. And then he he's there's something else in, in this paragraph. He says, allow me to pause here and speak to you as one mind to another, as though we are separated, perhaps by the abyss of eons. Now, up until now, Severian seems to have assumed that he was talking to near contemporaries. And I think this is the first time he speaks as though there is the possibility that the readers are distant posterity, mm-hmm. even far in the future or deep in the past or not even his own past, but an alternative past of another past of the universe. And he says, though, what I have already written from the lock gate to the fair at Saltus embraces most of my adult life. And what remains to be recorded concerns a few months only. I feel I am less than half concluded with my narrative. So Craig, this bit about the story being less than half concluded. I mean, this story isn't even close to half concluded. Mm -hmm. However, I think it's obvious that Wolf intended this to be a trilogy that the play at the House Absolute, would sit very near the center of the story. The play is chapter 24 of this volume, making it the 69th chapter of this book. And there are 83 chapters after that. But after the story was broken into four volumes, Wolf added the story contest because the fourth volume was a little thin. And that's as much as, you know, 10 additional chapters, or maybe only eight. So the original story was. 142, 144 chapters long. And to be honest, I think the last four or three of the last four to be a coda to the story. So I feel like the arc of Severian's story ends with the meeting with Master Palamon. So really, I can see why Severian would say the story is less than half concluded. As it was originally envisioned, they are approaching the midway point. That would make sense. I think think that's right. Yeah. Um, The other thing, 
two that I would add is that for him to mention that now, like the way the, the last paragraph of the chapter works, he starts off with this and says, and remember that I was killing all these people along the way. <laughs> so it's another way for him to really emphasize. I was torturing and executing people for way more than right up until <laughs> the end, man. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so it's really a way to emphasize, like we're going to think about like, he's not just sort of saying it for technical reasons. He's also saying it in a way to really kind of, I feel like admit and, and confess how much he had been doing this throughout the whole thing that all the way up to this point, the story is about like, you know, I, I talked about how nervous I was and how I worried about these things. And he's like, and I've still got a lot to tell you. And I'm just going to say now that I was doing all kinds of awful things through most of it, even though I'm not going to go over it and over it and over again. And one other thing, I think I've always thought that from the time of his exile to his return to the Citadel was a full year. But, you know, given how many chapters seem necessary to cover less than a week so far, I'm very curious about how true it is that we have only a few months left in this story. Yeah, it seems right, though. I mean, I think the big question for me, ultimately, is how long does he stay in Thrax? Like, how long is he actually working in Thrax? It can't be long, um, though, because he doesn't meet the, what the, what's the name of the guy, the, the boss of oh, Thrax yeah. uh, yeah. until the night before he leaves. He couldn't have been there very long. But at the same time, he talks about all kinds of things that he's done to reorganize the prison and, Maybe, and yeah. do all kinds of stuff. I don't know. Yeah, it's just it's never quite clear. But that's the one big gap in the narrative I feel like that we get because the rest of it is all like physically walking and going from place to place. And right. And the last part of course is all the, the craziness up to the war. Um, But yeah, so I think that's the real part that leaves it confusing over exactly how long it is. I think I'm going to pay attention to that though. Yeah. So for me, this chapter really highlights Severian's mental and emotional state, like all the way from his reactions to women Maybe his sort of image falling back in a little more immature patterns, but it also creates, you know, I can see how this is one of those chapters where people would want to say, yeah, Severian's just an awful, horrible person who doesn't know what he's doing and doesn't want to admit it. But I do feel like we get a whole lot of stuff towards the end and the suggestions where he does admit how nervous he was and also shows us intentionally or not how much he's trying to convince himself that he was doing the right thing that he knows he wasn't. And so there is a lot here that Severian is not just completely cold and stupid. <laughs> you know, I mean, he's, <laughs> he, he's still in these moments. He does have a tiny moment of pity and he does realize that all the things that he's doing are you know, horribly questionable, even in the midst of whatever he thinks his duty is um, in, in his obeying. So it's tempered. And I, I really like this chapter because it, in the end, doesn't pull any punches about Severian's arrogance, coldness, selfishness, and things like that. But at the same time, it throws enough in there to also say, but he was struggling with that. And so it's, to me, a pretty cool chapter in terms of what's going on in his head. All right. So, well, that was 
a fairly brief and straightforward chapter, which we have managed to sit around here talk about in our time, what, an hour and a half. So, <laughs> At least. Yeah. And we certainly hope that y'all have comments, thoughts, corrections, and complaints about Morwenna and the execution. And I know some people do believe that Severian's justification for the death of Eusebius was you know, just as he described. So I'd like to hear that. But bring it all to us on the Facebook group, the subreddit, the Twitter, or the email. You can find out how to do all that on the show notes. Leave an Apple podcast review. Tell your wolf-reading friends. And until you hear from us next, may the Moira favor you. Not the Demiurge, because Demiurges are bad. <laughs> <laughs> Take care, everybody. And now when you're sitting there in your silk upholstered chair Talking to some rich folks that you know Well, I hope you don't see me in my ragged company All that you know I could never be alone Take me down, little Susie, take me down I know you think you're the queen of the underground Send me dead flowers every morning Send me dead flowers by the mail Send me dead flowers to my wedding And I won't forget to put roses on your grave I won't forget to put roses on your grave. You're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. Okay. <laughs> Take a number of pantosopolis. Let's try again. Take a number of pantosopolis. I can't say it. Take a number of pantosopolis. Okay. Mr. P. <laughs> that's a good idea is that is that a good ramble <laughs> that was very good, well done good sir. improv all right good. <laughs> no notes on that one all right sorry i muted it for a second because it was particularly <laughs> particularly loud i was waiting okay they they walked away it sorry is it can you hear all that in the background uh yeah but probably uh, it's not gonna it, okay. by the time we I, mix I everything down probably not who knows i think they're walking oh. away from the door so i've hey i'm all about Scylla. trust me I, skill cool. Although I think it's Scylla Scylla, yeah. Um, by the way, I think I can. Well, I didn't convince Amber to let me buy it. I think negotiations went well. <laughs> okay, you I, were faded in mind for a second. Am I back? But you're back. Yeah, you're okay. back. Let's go ahead and now that we're can let's stop and okay pray. This that's a good time to stop too because now my dog is going nuts outside. I'll just go.